most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. Tuesday, July 12th, 2022, the 538th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. If you're doing that, you are doing it through the Substack as a paid subscriber. I'm your moderator.substack.com. That is the only way to get the podcast on the day of its release. If you are listening somewhere else, please consider going to I'm your moderator.substack.com and signing up for a paid subscription. You can do that for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. It works out to less than a quarter per episode, and you'll get all the writing right up front when I release it. So, hey, if you want to support me, you want to support the show, that's the best way to do it. So yesterday, I did not intend to make the entire episode about a couple of subjects that are not necessarily and directly about the current news of the world, but I wanted to make sure that I got those thoughts out in a cohesive way and fully explained where I was coming from, and I hope that it was helpful to a bunch of people out there, at least in terms of the first half hour or so. I do want to update some aspects of the second segment from yesterday in which I talked about the potential release of new information from Hunter Biden's laptop or iPhone or iPad or iCloud that was released over the weekend on the 4chan message boards and then hosted as a torrent across the Internet so that it will just now be there and people can download it and do what they do. Now, the initial speculation was that this was potentially just the iPhone backup that existed on the laptop that Marco Polo had accessed a month ago and that all that had just been dumped. Now, Tucker Carlson had a segment on his show that he recorded last week when he was in Europe. He met with Jack Maxey to talk about all of this. And Jack Maxey was posting about this situation yesterday. He basically called everyone talking about the laptop who is not him a fed. Now, that's kind of crazy or it's kind of dumb. But regardless, it's not true. But regardless, it's worth sharing Jack Maxey's post so you can hear his perspective. I don't want to misrepresent him in any way. Here's what he said. Explanation of all the things released on 4chan and flooding Twitter. 
Just so everyone knows, these are real. But my tech guy had a nervous breakdown or basically a psychotic episode and went rogue and published this stuff. Full on believes me and everyone else are CIA, including the news personalities who seem to have ignored all of this. Also believes media, CIA, FBI, DOJ do not care about little children. He is right about that last part, but extremely unstable. I would never post this stuff and never have because the real issues are the betrayal by Biden at all and our intelligence agencies of the American people to the communist Chinese. Saddest part is I can't find a single sheriff to review the 80,000 images we recovered. That failure in part is why Vincent Kaufman lost it. Good person who basically has lost all faith in the institutions of the West. I sincerely hope he stops, but he has told many lies to me since he fled Switzerland to New Zealand and truth be known, has probably been planning this for months. Before I left Switzerland, I had to talk him and his extremely disturbed wife off the ledge when they were planning to go to the Russian embassy in Bern. He sees the media as part of a larger conspiracy to protect the elite at the expense of everything and especially children. None of this has been easy. Much of it has been deeply painful to see. And trust me when I say this iPhone isn't squat compared to the rest of the deleted material we have uncovered. One brave sheriff could change all this because I refuse to look at those images without the cover of law. Yes, Hunter is one of the most evil people I have ever known, but so is his family and the FBI, CIA, DOJ and the media that foisted these grifter traitors on America and the world. Please, God, let there be one sheriff with courage because the guy posting this is not going to stop. He already believes he is going to die and he said he does not care. But I care about him and more importantly, I care about all the innocents his irresponsible and likely illegal behavior will harm. So Jack Maxey's take is essentially that the tech guy he was working with is responsible for the release of this material. He said the material has been uncovered. He doesn't say the word hacked anywhere in here. And he suggests at least that he has not gone through the 80,000 images. He says he has and that he needs a sheriff to go through it because it could potentially be material that is exploitative of children. And he wouldn't want to have that association made with himself. He wants to hand it over to law enforcement. So Jack Maxey has had the laptop since the fall of 2020. Very little has come out from Jack Maxey since the fall of 2020. A few months ago, he claimed that there were 450 gigabytes of information. John Paul McIsaac, the computer shop repairman who was responsible for turning the laptop over to federal law enforcement, and then eventually to Rudy Giuliani, says that from the work he did, there was no way that 450 gigabytes of information could have been recovered from the laptop in question. So where is this other data coming from? Because it does seem at this point like the people on the 4chan boards may have 450 gigabytes of information. Now, that's not confirmed, and I'm honestly not the person who's going to be able to confirm it. But if that's true, then where does all the additional information come from? We're talking about potentially an extra 200 gigabytes or so of information, which is basically like having an entirely second laptop. 
based only on the amount of data. I'm not suggesting they have a second laptop, though they might. Okay, Hunter lost multiple devices over this span of time in question. So it's possible that whatever additional information there is came from another device. It's also possible, as was rumored, that someone may have hacked Hunter Biden's iCloud account. Now, that would be illegal. So the critical question is right now, where did that extra information come from? Because even Marco Polo, who has been studying this stuff nonstop for over a year now, does not have any idea where that extra data comes from. And that tracks with what John Paul McIsaac says as well. He said that there's no way that 450 gigabytes of data could have been extracted from the hard drive he worked on, the hard drive he passed over. So what options do we have? Pretty much just another device or a hack of the actual iCloud account. And we will know that that could be the case if we begin seeing new information, as I said yesterday, that has been created since John Paul McIsaac originally took possession of the laptop, laptops, in April of 2019. So the question is, is there new data? Is there 450 gigabytes of data? If there is, that extra data is separate to the laptop as described by John Paul McIsaac and the information being analyzed by Marco Polo. So is there new information? If there is, where did it come from? Another device, a hack of Hunter's iCloud, that part would be illegal. That part of things is still evolving. We will wait and see how that all shakes out. But what is not evolving is the identity of Pedo Peter. So at the end of the segment yesterday, I said either Pedo Peter is little Hunter, Bo's son, who he named after his brother, or it was Natalie Biden, Bo's daughter, who is little Hunter's sister. Since then, I have learned and had it confirmed beyond all doubt that the iPad, the iMessage interface in the screenshots that people have been analyzing is from Little Hunter's iPad and that the contact, Pedo Peter, is his sister, Natalie Biden. The phone numbers match up with Natalie Biden's contacts in other parts of the laptop. So Pedo Peter's identity is Natalie Biden as identified by little Hunter Biden. That's Bo Biden's son, Robert Hunter Biden, the second bagman Hunter, the Hunter we all know and are disgusted by is Robert Hunter Biden. Okay. That's his full name. He goes by Hunter. So Pedo Peter is definitively not Joe Biden. And the iMessage in question, whose contacts list a pedo Peter, that account is not bagman Hunter Biden's. It is little Hunter's. Now, why does little Hunter refer to his own sister as pedo Peter in his contacts? I have no idea. We are talking about one of the most degenerate families history has ever produced. And remember, it's not just Hunter and it's not just Bo's kids. 
Ashley Biden, the daughter of Joe and Jill in her diary, recalls beating her own vagina to distract her from the sound of her parents having sex. And she describes inappropriate showers with her father at age nine. And I'm sorry that these subjects are disturbing, but this is the family your friends and neighbors voted for, claiming that they were saving the country from racism and Donald Trump and all his QAnon supporters. They were returning the country to decency and trusting science again and putting the adults back in the room. Those were their justifications. Now, all of this stuff was true and publicly available before they cast that vote, but they were given a few semi-plausible excuses to ignore it by people they trust as authorities. 51 former intelligence officials said that it was Russian disinformation, so they simply ignored it because they're main focus was their own self-image and self-righteousness. They knew how important it was for them specifically to go out and vote against Donald Trump. They had to save America. And they used the same justification for ignoring the obvious and overwhelming proof of a stolen election. So to summarize, Jack Maxey seems like he is floating off somewhere in space And the things that he is saying are mostly incoherent. The idea that he is trying to separate himself from the same information he claimed to have a couple of months ago. Well, that's bananas. He's pushing all that off onto his tech guy who's gone crazy. And the fact that not one brave sheriff has reached out to him to do the job he says they need to do. We haven't seen new information yet, but if there is 450 gigabytes of information, then that would mean there is information beyond what anyone else has to this point studied and analyzed. Now, whether that new information has been created since the laptop or laptops were originally handed over to John Paul McIsaac, that's a question that remains to be answered. It's also possible that another device or something had additional information that John Paul McIsaac and anyone else studying the laptop has not yet been made aware of. But that seems very unlikely. Another device possible, an iCloud hack possible, but illegal. But unless John Paul McIsaac is a liar, which Jack Maxey seems to be claiming, and unless Marco Polo is just running with that lie, which again, Jack Maxey seems to be claiming and is specifically calling them and everyone else who doubts him a fed, then Jack Maxey's getting something wrong or maybe getting a lot of things wrong. And it's strange that he had that segment last night on Tucker. You may not have seen it. The entire segment was like 25, 26 minutes long. It's available in the info stream t.me slash I'm your moderator. It actually is a really good piece Besides the fact that Tucker claims that Maxi and his coder are the only people who have analyzed any of this information in the almost two years it's been out. That is simply not true. I said on Patel Patriots show last week, again, I've been in contact with Marco Polo for the entire time, and I have seen pieces of the report. They've released exhibits from the report. Garrett has on his own channel and Marco Polo has on their channel on Telegram as well. You can see that stuff. 
They are doing the work. And when you see outlets like the New York Post and the Daily Mail and the Sun release exclusives on the Biden laptop, all of that is coming from Marco Polo, who has taken the time to analyze it and put those stories together. They compile the information, pass it off. The news organizations analyze and confirm their information, and then they write their stories. Now, you might still say things are taking too long. The report should have been out a long time ago. Say whatever you want. I got nothing to do with that. I would love it if everything happened right now, always. I wanted everything to happen right now on January 19th of 2021. Trust me, but it didn't for reasons, some of which are beyond my understanding. But I do know the work is being done because I've seen the results of that work. And so has everyone. It's not like writers at the Daily Mail and the New York Post and the Sun are doing their own analysis of the laptop. They're getting that information from the people analyzing it at Marco Polo. And as I said yesterday, their goal is to create a report that is airtight and irrefutable and can't be questioned. They want to know that their work is 100% correct because they want the report to stand the test of time. And Garrett has said that publicly in place after place after place, everywhere he goes. So the idea that somehow they're dragging their feet is crazy. And so that slight from Tucker and the promotion of Jack Maxey's side of this story seems a little weird. And I'll leave it at that. But Pedo Peter is Natalie on Little Hunter's iPad. That is what that is. There is no Bagman Hunter or Joe Biden connection to the name Pedo Peter. Now, if the name Pedo Peter is somehow a joke about Hunter or Joe, then I will say that when that becomes clear. But right now, there's no reason to believe that. And the story, as it's being told, the one that went viral on various social media sites, including the legacy ones, is just wrong. It's just wrong. And I'm not defending any Bidens by saying that. The fact that little Hunter would nickname his sister Pedo Peter is very, very disturbing. So obviously, I'm going to keep an eye on this situation. If new information emerges, I will gladly communicate it, even if it turns out that I am wrong about something. Like yesterday, I thought that it was most likely it was Natalie's name for Little Hunter or Little Hunter's contact name for himself. It turns out it's Little Hunter's name for Natalie. I thought the other was more likely while allowing for the possibility that I was mistaken about the identities. And it turns out I was flip them around, but the rest of it stays in place. So let's jump back into the land of current events. And I don't want to spend long on this because it is so, so stupid, but we should all be aware that there is a push right now for a new wave of COVID that is supposed to emerge in a couple of months and make everything very, very dangerous for the midterm elections. And this is being previewed across the board. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, was out yesterday talking about how we would likely see a new wave in the fall. Rochelle Walensky 
was on television yesterday saying this. Many Americans are undervaccinated, meaning they are not up to date on their COVID-19 vaccines. Not all people over the age of 50 have received their first booster dose. Of those who received their first booster dose, only 28% of those over 50 have received a second booster dose. And of those over the age of 65, only 34% have received their second booster dose. So my message right now is very simple. It's essential that these Americans, as Dr. Shah said, get their second booster shot right away. And then the head of the WHO, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said this. The Emergency Committee on COVID-19 met on Friday last week and concluded that the virus remains a public health emergency of international concern. Now, the words are important there. A public health emergency of international concern. Now, if you recall back a few weeks ago, maybe it was more than a month ago. I don't think it was that long ago. There was a lot of conversation about a new WHO pandemic treaty that the nations of the world would all sign and in so doing would subject their country and the people of their country to global governance as passed down by the World Health Organization whenever the World Health Organization determines that there is a public health emergency of international concern. So here we are coming up close to three years of coronavirus being in the world. Remember, we didn't lock down till March of 2020. It wasn't, quote unquote, in the United States until January of 2020. In fact, the World Health Organization was saying that human to human transmission wasn't even a thing that happened. Now, we found out that the coronavirus COVID-19 was in America in early December, mid-November, potentially even early November or before of 2019. So we really are getting to the point where we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of all of that nonsense beginning. And we are now being told by the WHO that the public health emergency of international concern still exists. We are all in a state of emergency regarding COVID, despite the presence of a very safe and effective vaccine that, you know, doesn't prevent infection, transmission, serious illness or death. But hey, it's a vaccine and you should still take it. Rochelle Walensky basically just told you that even older people have stopped taking booster shots completely, but she wants everybody to make sure and vax up. Because we are facing a new wave in the fall. You know how there's always a fall wave, right? Remember, they told us that right from the beginning. Oh, there's always a second wave in the fall. And sometimes there's another wave in the winter. And sometimes you just keep getting variants forever. And every now and then you toss in a little monkeypox. You toss in a little Marburg. You start saying that gardeners should look out for heart conditions because the soil is going to upset their heart. Yeah, that is a real article in the real news. And everything else will also cause heart disease, heart attacks, blood clots. Pretty much everything in life causes all those things. You're too tall, blood clots. 
Too fat? Blood clots. Too skinny? Blood clots. Spend too much outside? Blood clots. Spend too much time at your desk on the computer? Blood clots. We talked last week about how excess deaths had risen astronomically in the UK, but they weren't from COVID. What could they be from? Oh, it's a mystery. Maybe all of the excess deaths were in people who garden so much that they spent most of the day snorting dirt. I learned it by watching Hunter Biden. Those damn dirt addicts, can't they see they're only harming themselves and the people around them with their gardening habit? It seems like they're really going to try this again. There was a headline last week, local Los Angeles news, can't remember if it was the Times or ABC or something, an article that was out, mask mandates might be back for the end of July. Is anyone actually going to believe any of this? No, but they're going to put it out on the news so much that it will convince people that other people must believe it and everybody's going to go along with all of it all over again because they don't actually need everybody to believe the story. They just need the most committed child brains to believe it and then mask back up and then start harassing everyone else and trying to guilt them into compliance so that no one ever kills anyone else's grandmother. They want to sell vaccines, of course, and around the world, countries are disposing of their vaccines because they're unused and no one wants them. They definitely want to bring masks back because they're a symbol of compliance and conformity, if nothing else. But the problem is it's probably not nothing else. The masks actually help them quite a lot when it comes to going out and rioting and burning and looting stores at businesses or when they're harassing people at their homes or when they're attacking police officers. The masks are actually quite helpful for that. They don't do anything to prevent the spread of an aerosolized virus, obviously, and never did. Why anyone believed that is beyond me. But there are purposes that they serve. And if enough people go out and mask, then enough other people will think, oh, hey, maybe there really is something to the the uh, the news continuing to tell us that another wave of covid is imminent. Maybe all these people pay a little more attention than I do. Maybe they're masking up for their safety and the safety of everyone else because there's another covid wave on the way. And what do you get if everyone believes that? Oh, yeah the perfect environment in which to steal elections. So apparently they're going to go for it. Now, I really doubt that really anyone is going to go along with this, but it's important to know that it's on the way so that when we hear people start saying it, we can immediately say to them, what are you going to do? You're going to mask? Do masks work? Didn't the CDC tell us specifically that cloth masks don't work? Do you remember when they tried pushing N95 masks because it became widely known and admitted that cloth masks don't do anything and in fact are only harmful? Do you remember that? So why are you wearing a cloth mask? And if they say better safe than sorry, ask them, how is wearing a mask safe when you know they don't work and they only cause problems? It's like driving with a blindfold on because you're worried that there might be 
a bee in the car. And if that bee flew around and stung you in the eye, you could crash. Better safe than sorry. Wear the blindfold. Ladies and gentlemen of this supposed jury, I have one final thing I want you to consider. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Chewbacca. Chewbacca is a Wookiee from the planet Kishik. But Chewbacca lives on the planet Endor. Now think about that. That does not make sense. Damn it. What? He's using the Chewbacca defense. Why would a Wookiee, an eight-foot-tall Wookiee, want to live on Endor with a bunch of two-foot-tall Ewoks? That does not make sense. But more importantly, you have to ask yourself, what does this have to do with this case? Nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, it has nothing to do with this case. It does not make sense. Look at me. I'm a lawyer defending a major record company, and I'm talking about Chewbacca. Does that make sense? Ladies and gentlemen, I am not making any sense. None of this makes sense. And so you have to remember, when you're in that jury room deliberating and conjugating the Emancipation Proclamation, does it make sense? No. Ladies and gentlemen of this supposed jury, it does not make sense. If Chewbacca lives on Endor, you must acquit. The defense rests. Sorry, everything to me basically reminds me of a South Park episode or a Mitch Hedberg joke. But here's something else that does not make sense. I think that, to be very honest with you, I, I do believe that we should have rightly believed, but we certainly believe that certain issues are just settled. Certain issues are just settled. Clearly we're not. No, that's right. And that's why I do believe that we are living sadly, in um, real unsettled times. That does not make sense. How is Kamala Harris still pretending to be vice president? How is anyone interviewing her? How is anyone handling her, allowing her to be interviewed or to speak in public anywhere? Doesn't make sense. Here's something else that makes absolutely no sense. So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. Okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right, you've got this. That is a public service announcement from New York City Emergency Management letting you know what you should do in the event that a nuclear bomb goes off in your city. Now, when I was in elementary school, we were still in the Cold War. And so we did 
nuclear fallout drills. And our nuclear fallout drill consisted of us going underneath our desks. And I think that might have been accompanied by the stop, drop and roll video. I think maybe we did those all at the same time. So if you're burning up, the thing you need to do is stop, drop and roll. That makes complete and total sense. But if there is a nuclear bomb that goes off, what you need to do is find a child's desk in a school and then hide under it for who knows how long. But remember, as John Cornyn said, when telling everyone that he was saving thousands and thousands of lives by chipping away at your Second Amendment rights, doing something is better than doing nothing. Now, what I'm talking about in elementary school, that was 30 years ago. So technology has advanced quite a lot since then. Surely we have great ways to respond to the dire threat of a nuclear bomb going off nearby. And apparently we do. Now you don't have to go to a school and find a child's desk to hide under. You can simply go inside. Step one, go inside. Not in a car, in a building. Go inside a building if you want to save yourself from nuclear fallout. Step two, stay inside the building. Now, there's no advice on what you should really do inside the building. You're supposed to be near the center of it. Try to stay away from windows, you know, for obvious reasons. But the point is you got to go inside and stay inside for however long it takes. Step three, turn on the TV, watch the TV, obey whatever the TV tells you. Because remember, in this point, this moment of great panic that you will surely be experiencing as soon as you find out that a nuclear bomb has gone off somewhere, what you're going to want to do is immediately turn to trusted, authoritative sources. And the only way to be sure that a source is trusted and authoritative is if it speaks to you through your television or another substitute but comparable screen and don't worry your phone will work just fine that will be a perfect place to get authoritative news because trust us we're not going to let you see anything that would dispute what's coming through the television so one's just as good as the other and if you don't have a television your computer or your phone will suffice just make sure that you turn on media somehow and do whatever that media tells you. Now, what is that media going to tell you to do? It's going to tell you to repeat steps one and two. If you've already completed steps one and two, then you just stay on step three until the TV says everything's fine and you can return to your life. So the cure for nuclear fallout, the response that we must have as a society, is exactly the same as how we solved COVID. We're going to lock down. You are going to go inside. You're going to stay inside until we tell you you can come out. And we're going to tell you to come out through the television. So just watch the television for as long as you're inside. Trust everything it says. If it says to do something different, who knows? We haven't experienced a situation like this before. It's like a brand new virus. 
You're just going to have to pay a lot of attention and obey whatever we say. That's the only way we're all going to get through this together. And if you, you, you individual, individual in quotes, you person who thinks they can just go around thinking for themselves, doing what they think is best. No, you do that. That's how you kill other people's grandmas. The solution for COVID is lockdown. The solution for nuclear fallout, lockdown. The solution for high gas prices, lockdown. The solution for food shortages, lockdown. The solution for gardening-related blood clots, also lockdown. And of course, the solution for elections that the global communist uniparty is surely going to lose, lockdown. Now, on one of the episodes last week, I played a little montage of clips from MSNBC where they thought they were showing all of the child brains in their audience how dumb and how crazy all the Republican candidates around the country actually were. And they started off that montage with CNN's Dana Bash asking South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem whether or not the 10-year-old girl from Ohio who had been impregnated and would have to cross state lines for abortion, whether or not she'd be able to get an abortion in South Dakota, or whether or not if that same situation occurred in South Dakota, how would Christy Nome handle that little girl's dilemma? We were told a 10-year-old was impregnated, she needed an abortion, and that the new normal the post-Roe era was going to make it impossible for that little girl to get the abortion she so desperately needs. Now, the only problem is there's absolutely no proof anywhere in the world that this little girl exists. She is not real. That story did not happen. And no one is able to substantiate it at all. But our media ran with it and our fake president ran with it as well. This is from the Daily Caller from Friday afternoon, Biden repeats totally unverified story of 10-year-old seeking abortion, making the media rounds. President Joe Biden and numerous mainstream media outlets have touted the story of an unidentified 10-year-old girl who traveled to Indiana to obtain an abortion that was illegal in her home state of Ohio. Dr. Caitlin Bernard, an Indianapolis obstetrician slash gynecologist claimed a child abuse doctor referred to her a 10 year old patient who was pregnant and seeking an abortion a few days past Ohio's six week limit. The story was originally published in the Cincinnati Inquirer, then quickly picked up by national outlets, including Politico, The Washington Post, CNN, Teen Vogue, The Hill and numerous other outlets, which did not claim to have independently verified the story. And in several cases, simply cited previous reports. Bernard's account did not mention specifics such as the name of the young patient's doctor, any of the towns where these events took place, whether charges were being pressed against the child's alleged rapist, and at what point, if at all, Bernard or the child abuse doctor contacted the authorities regarding the individual who had impregnated the 10-year-old girl. Bernard responded to the Daily Caller News Foundation's request for comment, but declined to offer any details to corroborate her story. I'm sorry, but I don't have any information to share, she wrote. 
The fact-checking publication Snopes was also unable to verify the incident in its July 5th investigation of the story, which noted that Bernard did not respond to the outlet's attempts to contact her. Snopes couldn't even prop up a story this fake. Bernard has worked with the media actively in the past and advocated against legal abortion limits previously in Politico, The Republic, PBS, 13 WTHR, and WRTV Indianapolis. The June 29th Politico article, which ran two days after Bernard claims to have received the call about a pregnant 10-year-old, makes no mention of the event. President Joe Biden used the incident in a Friday speech to argue in favor of abortion exceptions for rape and incest. The White House did not immediately respond to the Daily Caller's request for comment. Now, some of those outlets that were just listed in this article are the same media outlets that you must follow once you go inside and stay inside in the event of a nuclear catastrophe. The outlets that just accepted at face value that there was a real 10-year-old in the world who was impregnated and unable to get the abortion she so desperately needed because of Ohio's six-week abortion limit are your authoritative sources for how to respond in the event of a nuclear disaster. But don't worry, as the PSA says, you've got this. Now you may say, fine, fine. We know the fake news is the fake news. We know they tell us fake stories. But take it one step further. This was, last week, their most powerful argument that they needed action on the abortion issue. Now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, it was initially my body, my choice. They abandoned that altogether because they realized that their vaccine mandates made that argument no longer valid. They tried to recast it as a privacy right, which is part of the original Roe argument, and no one was buying that, of course. They tried to claim that women with ectopic pregnancies would die for sure because they couldn't receive abortion care, even though ectopic pregnancies are accepted in every state across the land. And I mean accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, not accepted. And after none of those worked, then they invented a 10-year-old who had been impregnated and tried to make the case on that basis. They took an extreme example, but they couldn't even find an extreme enough example from reality, so they simply made one up to make their argument about what they claim is one of the most important issues to them and to women. And now, because it's 2022 and we can't expect any more from them, from people who are capable of pregnancy. This is from a real hearing that happened today in the Senate, and you will hear Josh Hawley's voice as the questioner. You said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? 
many women, cis women have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important because of my line of questioning. Because so we can't talk about it. Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm it's denying that trans people exist by asking are you? you if you're talking are you? about women are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so you're denying that trans people like this? Thing. And that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you, Absolutely. or are they also treated like this, where no, you, no, no, they're, they're told that to they're at, opening up people to oh, violence? We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned you, a lot. I know. This exchange. Now you got to remember. This isn't the backup team. This is the best the Democrat Communist Party can do. This is the actual state of their movement. This is the actual other side. This is what they are now. And picking up a bit on what I was discussing yesterday, there's no compromise position there. That is just utter nonsense. The abortion issue has absolutely nothing to do with transphobia. But what else are these people going to talk about? They know they must be right because they identify as good. And they know they must be smart because they identify as smart. And all of those same people also happen to support Liz Cheney now. They say that Liz Cheney is a perfect example of what a Republican should actually be like. And you can ask them, well, hey, okay, so I get that you think Liz Cheney is on the good team now because Liz Cheney seems like your best bet to somehow get rid of Donald Trump based on all of these other falsehoods that you completely believe without question and without any knowledge to back them up, by the way. But what about her dad, old Dick Cheney? The guy that you have spent the last 20 years calling a war criminal. What about that guy? Does the apple fall far from the tree? Is Liz Cheney making up for the former disgraces of her name? Is that what she's doing? Or are she and Dick Cheney completely aligned in their positions on everything? As they've always seemed to be. Remember Dick Cheney when he came and sat with Liz Cheney on the anniversary of January 6th and... Lin-Manuel Miranda and his Hamilton castmates sang through a big screen, reminding everyone of how we almost lost our democracy in the very violent insurrection. Riddle me that, commie. Is there a lot of light between Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney? I mean, surely there's not. So what are you saying? Did you abandon all your principles from 20 years ago 
Is Dick Cheney no longer a war criminal? Oh, Dick Cheney is just a necessary evil because Liz Cheney is so important. Liz Cheney is so important because she is our best bet at ridding ourselves forever of Donald Trump and all his supporters. And we must rid ourselves forever of Donald Trump and all his supporters. Otherwise, there might be another very violent insurrection. And at that point, time becomes a flat circle. Everything is just everything else. We are still being told that the January 6th committee is going to save the country, save our democracy. We need to get to the bottom of this. There was a very violent insurrection. And in order to prevent another very violent insurrection, we must make sure there is no more Donald Trump. There are no more Donald Trump supporters and no one ever again questions the legitimacy of the outcome of an American election as reported by the news. Now, have they actually substantiated any of the claims they've made about the very violent insurrection? No, they most certainly have not. If anything, every bit of evidence they produce actually proves the other side, in addition to proving how dishonest the entire process is. But none of that matters now. What matters now is that Liz Cheney is a hero and that people with the capacity for pregnancy are sometimes men or other that if we can't make a convincing case, then it's perfectly okay to simply make up victimized 10 year old girls and that the best way to survive a nuclear holocaust is to go inside your house and watch TV. Now mask up, you child-brained morons. Now switching subjects completely without a segue, on Friday, we discussed the assassination of Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister of Japan, and the potential consequences of an event like that. This is from Axios. Shinzo Abe's political party wins supermajority in parliamentary elections. Japan's ruling coalition won a sweeping supermajority in the country's parliamentary elections on Sunday, which would enable it to fulfill former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's enduring ambition to reform the country's pacifist constitution. Why it matters. The elections were held two days after Abe's shocking assassination at a campaign stop geared toward winning the parliament's upper house. Abe resigned from his post as prime minister in 2020 to be succeeded by current prime minister Fumio Kishida, but remained an influential figure in the two leaders shared liberal Democratic Party. And Axios is missing the fact that there was actually another prime minister in the middle of that succession. So one wonders why they left him out. The Liberal Democratic Party and its coalition partners won 87 seats in Sunday's election, surpassing the 70 needed to form a supermajority, the New York Times reported. Abe's assassination seems to have led to a boost in voter turnout, which came in at over 52%, above 2019's 49% per the Times. And if you recall, in our discussion on Friday, I noted how the media was replaying the same narrative from the French elections, that people would stay home. It would be a low turnout election. So they didn't get the result they wanted. And why is that? 
because the assassination of the former prime minister increased turnout. Thanks, Axios. Great reporting. The supermajority will allow the coalition to change Japan's constitution, which calls for the renunciation of war, opening up the potential for Japan to become a military power. At a campaign event on Sunday, Fumio Kishida said, I have the responsibility to take over the ideas of former Prime Minister Abe, the Times reported. So that's very interesting. Shinzo Abe was a staunch ally of President Donald Trump. He was described in Western media as a divisive figure, an ultra-nationalist, the same ways they describe Trump, the same ways they describe Putin and Viktor Orban and Jair Bolsonaro and Narendra Modi from India. It is always the same story for every leader who cares about their own country's national sovereignty and the individual sovereignty of their own citizens, because you can't have individual sovereignty without national sovereignty. But the really interesting part of all this is that Abe's party was able to win a supermajority. Now they have enough votes in the upper house of parliament that they could amend their constitution and change the relationship they have with the United States of America regarding Japan's ability to form an army and defend itself, which is a critical factor at play in the situation that we are likely about to see emerge between China and Taiwan. And depending on the speed at which the Japanese government works in amending that constitution, they may be able to eliminate the narrative power of the global communists and their White House puppet, the fake president, Joe Biden, to claim that the United States must get involved militarily in the China-Taiwan situation as a means of protecting Japan. So over the weekend, a lot of really crazy video emerged from Sri Lanka as the citizens rose up and staged an actual insurrection to depose the Sri Lankan prime minister. Now, it's maybe too early to say what's happening behind what we were shown, but we can start to get hints. And for that, let's check in with the BBC's coverage. Now, the BBC is state media for the UK. I know they produce very cool TV shows and everybody loves the BBC, but the BBC is essentially the same as Canadian state television, CBC, and NPR in the United States. The BBC is also part of the Trusted News Initiative. The BBC exists to support the global communist agenda. There should be no question of that. And so you must keep that in mind while reading their coverage. Sri Lanka, opposition leader ready to run for presidency. Sri Lanka's main opposition leader, Sajith Premadasa has told the BBC he intends to run for president once Gotabaya Rajapaska steps down. This comes after his Samagi Jana Balawagia party, SJB, held talks with allies to get support for the move. 
Sri Lanka is facing an unprecedented economic crisis, which has brought thousands to the street since March. The country has run out of cash and is struggling to import basic items like food, fuel and medicine. President Rajapaska announced that he plans to resign this week, and the Speaker of Parliament has said lawmakers will choose the next president on 20 July. Mr. Premadasa told the BBC that his party and allies agreed he should be, quote, putting my nomination for the position of presidency if a vacancy occurs. He lost the presidential election in 2019 and would need support of the governing alliance MPs to win. He is banking on getting it due to the popular discontent against Mr. Rajapaska and his family, who have dominated Sri Lankan politics for more than two decades. The country's inflation rate reached a whopping 55% in June, and millions of people are struggling to make a living. Mr. Primadasa said he was ready to take part in an all-party interim government. The SJB leader has been criticized for refusing to take the post of prime minister when it was offered to him in April. His rival, Ranil Wickremesinga, was appointed, but he has also indicated he would resign to make way for a unity government. Mr. Premadasa described the current situation in Sri Lanka as confused uncertainty and total anarchy, saying it needs, quote, consensus, consultation, compromise, and coming togetherness. The country's usable reserves have dropped to around $250 million, according to local media reports. The crippling shortage of fuel has devastated public transport. There are rolling power cuts as power plants lack enough fuel to function. Schools are closed this week as well due to the fuel crisis. Many people are trying to leave the country. Mr. Premadasa has conceded that there are no quick fixes. To return the economy to 2019 levels would take approximately four to five years, he said, adding that his party had an economic plan to overcome the crisis. We are not going to hoodwink the people. We are going to be frank and present a plan to get rid of Sri Lanka's economic ills, Mr. Premadasa said. But the protesters in Colombo say that all 225 members of parliament are responsible for the current situation and they want a new beginning with fresh and energetic people in politics. So what do we have? We have a small country that was falling apart economically in ways very similar to how many other countries in the world's economies are falling apart. And I know, I know it's all because of the very deadly pandemic and Vladimir Putin's totally unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. That must be what's destroying Sri Lanka's economy as well. And it is definitely not the implementation of the global communist agenda in Sri Lanka that's causing the problem, right? The citizens are just uprising because things are bad. And so the Western media says that to all of us. And they expect we'll think, oh, yeah, Putin's invasion and the very deadly pandemic are doing the same thing to this country, too. Someone needs to come in and fix it. And we know as communists that the way to fix everything is through coming togetherness and consensus and consultation and compromise. That's going to fix everything. We just need to simply communicate a bunch of aspirational goals a few happy abstractions. And then once the people realize that I am the leader that's going to provide all these things for them, 
Surely the people will see the truth of my message and a new day will dawn. Everything will be better. Thank you, BBC, for projecting my message of coming togetherness across the Western world so that when I take power after the corrupt parliament names me the new president, everyone in the West will forget about Sri Lanka and say, oh, that Sri Lanka problem's probably fixed. But how exactly did Sri Lanka get to the point they're at? Well, for that, let's turn to an article written by the deposed prime minister, Ranil Wickremesinga, on the official website of the authoritative source, the World Economic Forum's own website, weforum.org. Or we could turn there. Except for the fact that once people started taking notice of the existence of this article, the World Economic Forum took the article down. Thank goodness for the Internet and the Wayback Machine. The article is not gone from the world. It's only gone from the World Economic Forum site. So let's read the article. And this is from the 29th of August, 2018. This is an important moment in Sri Lanka's development. As the country continues to deliver on its plans for economic development and stands on the cusp of a tradition to a knowledge-based economy. That sounds very World Economic Forum. Since the country and its people saw a vibrant transition in its political landscape in January 2015, further bolstered by the August 2015 general elections that formed a national unity government, a first ever political experience for the country since its nearly seven decades of independence, Sri Lanka has put in place many of the building blocks needed to reinvigorate its socio-economic and political architecture. Now, if you're wondering whether or not the United Nations got involved to make sure that election was very safe and very secure, the answer is yes. And who else helped out? Well, the Obama administration. John Kerry, Jen Psaki, they all wanted to make sure that the Sri Lankan election in 2015 would go off without a hitch. But it's nothing like all the other countries they take over. We have achieved many positive gains over the last three years through bold policy initiatives and pragmatic strategies that enabled the country to win back recognition and friendly engagements with the rest of the world. Oh, they're back on the good side for the rest of the world after that election. Amazing. This has been a key foreign policy achievement of our government. Doors are open again for constructive and friendly engagements that have eased economic and political pressures. However, as per the expectations of all our people, there is more to achieve and the government plans with due diligence to make Sri Lanka regain its centrality in the Indian Ocean and become a knowledge-based highly competitive hub with a dynamic social market economy, a social market economy. Ooh, what an amazing term kind of has that nice state capitalism or stakeholder capitalism ring to it. The progress Sri Lanka has delivered over the past three years and the success of its plans going forward are naturally influenced by the global economic downfall and heavily tied to strategic trade relationships, in particular trade relationships across the Asian region. It is no secret that Asia is the future economic engine 
And in our endeavors to make Sri Lanka a rich country by 2025, it is our intention to engage Asia more steadily, utilizing the strategic access to major growing markets in the region from India, Pakistan, China, Japan, and ROK, that's Republic of Korea, to the ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Developments in Africa are also important in looking to South-South engagements and cooperation. While we undertake this reorientation, we also continue to strengthen our partnerships with the West, particularly our top export markets of the United States and Europe. Our economic policy, Vision 2025, a very catchy name is firmly embedded in several principles, including a social market economy that delivers economic dividends to all. In the first place, we need to ensure we have a skill pool that matches the job market's demands. Sri Lanka's education system is being transformed through progressive and important policy reform. The minimum length of schooling has been increased to 13 years, while better education is being brought to rural areas through the Nearest school is the best school program, and Sri Lanka is investing in more teachers and better training. Also, opportunities for vocational training in selected areas during school education will be introduced. Further, we have taken action to empower new and innovative ideas by strengthening the intellectual property regime in Sri Lanka. The plan for an empowered Sri Lanka identifies the priorities of raising incomes, ensuring employment and housing for all and improving the quality of life for all citizens. Oh, what lofty goals. The plan is delivering impressive results. The current government has created over 460,000 jobs and helped more than 260,000 families secure a home. Strong progress is being made on plans to bring opportunities to rural communities by building necessary infrastructure, such as roads and bridges, connecting rural and urban areas, and linking Sri Lanka's economic hubs. A program, Enterprise Sri Lanka, has been launched to encourage young and educated entrepreneurs who will receive loans to start SMEs. The government has also invested in some mega projects, including the Colombo Megapolis Constructions, to build a city of the future, and irrigation projects, including the Moraga Hakanda Kulaganga Dam to generate green energy and provide water resources for agro-production. With a domestic market of 20 million consumers with a modest per capita income, Sri Lanka recognizes the importance of external demand for sustained high and long-term growth. This is why the country is rolling out a plan to strategically position Sri Lanka as the hub of the Indian Ocean, securing opportunities for local businesses in global production networks, and ensuring that the country is capitalizing on opportunities to enter new global value chains. This outward-looking approach will increase the efficiency of the domestic economy, contributing to a better life for all Sri Lankans. Sri Lanka is mindful of the shortcomings in its macroeconomic policies and institutional capacities that are required to respond to the challenges. We have encouraged strong public-private partnerships and enabled institutions to become more transparent and efficient, which is what we always want. Share all the data and make sure that the government combines with corporations. That's how you fix everything. Know what everybody is doing and thinking and saying at all times, and then hand all control over to the interests of the government 
keeping itself in power and partnering with corporations to centralize everything, you know, for efficiency and control. But, you know, just efficiency. Don't think about the control part. It's just more efficient this way. Trust us, we're really, really good at numbers. We want them to function with independence while ensuring transparency through being in compliance with norms set by the parliamentary oversight committees. The drive to end corruption is strong. We have enacted policy and legislative changes to facilitate doing business with Sri Lanka. It now ranks second in Southeast Asia, according to the World Bank. We have also played a constructive role in promoting international and regional initiatives in many areas, ranging from the environment and climate change to maritime security and migration. It is our commitment to use the strategic potential of the country, including its vibrant maritime connectivity for enhancing friendly cooperation with all partners while reaping the economic benefits for all our peoples. For the first time, Sri Lanka has now been linked to the large ASEAN region by entering into the free trade agreement with Singapore to have struck its first comprehensive trade agreement, including not only goods, but services and investment with a country like Singapore regarded as one of the most open economies with high quality institutions is an important milestone for Sri Lanka and a major achievement for the current government. The Singapore FTA is a strong step and that's free trade agreement is a strong step towards closer integration with ASEAN and in fact was signed in the same month that Singapore took over the chairmanship of ASEAN for the year 2018. It signals to ASEAN that Sri Lanka is interested in the region and signals to the world that it is serious about reform. The investment and trade resulting from the Singapore Free Trade Agreement is expected to drive the earning potential of Sri Lankans. Having created hundreds of thousands of jobs, the government is now focused on turning these into better paying jobs for people, in particular for youth and the younger demographics. The government has been clear that FTAs like this one are about opportunity, development, and delivering a better standard of living for our people. Oh, the joys of globalism. Sri Lanka has already begun preliminary discussions with another ASEAN country, Thailand, on a potential FTA, and formal talks were launched during the visit of the Thai Prime Minister to Colombo in July. This, too, is an important milestone, with Thailand taking over the ASEAN chair next year. At present, Sri Lanka has a dialogue partner status in ASEAN as a member of the ASEAN Regional Forum along with 26 other countries. But the country will be using its trade agreements with Singapore and potential trade agreement with Thailand to bring it closer to obtaining observer status in ASEAN, with the goal of an FTA, as well as linking to the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. So essentially, all of the efforts are toward globalism, but wait till you see what joy globalism in the World Economic Forum model can produce. The purpose of closer engagement with ASEAN is to generate more foreign direct investment, diversify export markets and create new technology and people linkages. ASEAN is important as a source of FDI inflows and a market for Sri Lankan exports. We have set ourselves the target of doubling exports by 2020 as part of our new national export strategy launched recently. 
which lays emphasis on the diversification of exports by strengthening emerging sectors to chart the next export growth cycle of Sri Lanka. With our nation already delivering increased FDI and record growth in both its traditional and high growth export industries, alongside its plan to redefine its international trade relationships, Sri Lanka is confident in its ability to deliver on its export targets. ASEAN has and will be a major part of Sri Lanka's growth strategy and its Engage Asia policy. The upcoming 27th World Economic Forum on ASEAN in Hanoi, Vietnam, provides me with the opportunity to showcase the landmark changes in Sri Lanka and our growing economic interconnection with the ASEAN region and beyond. It will build upon the historical and cultural ties that have existed for many centuries and which bind our people irrevocably. So Sri Lanka, when the new government came into place in 2015 and since, have been fully engaged in the World Economic Forum agenda, also known as global communism. They are interested in transitioning into a knowledge-based economy, and they are focused on public-private partnerships. So how is the World Economic Forum agenda, how is the global communist agenda doing in Sri Lanka? Not very well, it seems. But don't worry, the new candidate, Premadasa, that the BBC is currently promoting as the next leader of Sri Lanka, on behalf of the very same World Economic Forum agenda that has destroyed Sri Lanka, is definitely the solution. They will show us that Sri Lanka's government has been overturned and deposed by the very violent insurrection in Sri Lanka. They will install a new leader. And that new leader's first priority, of course, is to make sure there are no more very violent insurrections, get the whole World Economic Forum agenda running again, and then they'll get right back on track for being a rich country by 2025. Now, it'll be very, very interesting to see if that actually works. Will they actually get that person installed by the government that the citizens of the country want to overthrow in its entirety when the parliament votes on the new leader in eight days. If I was a betting man, I would say no, but this will be an interesting gauge about how much influence the World Economic Forum and the Global Communist Order currently has in Sri Lanka. It's possible that they will kick out the Global Communists completely, as they have in Myanmar and Burkina Faso and some other nations where the same playbook has been run as it's been run all across the world, including in the United States. Now, hey, maybe my speculation's wrong. We're going to have to see how the situation develops. But if the World Economic Forum and the global communists install another leader in Sri Lanka, I think we're going to see more of the same from the citizens there. Another nation brought into the modern age with the touch of none other than Barack Hussein Obama. Isn't it amazing? But I know, I know, he can't be the bad guy. 
Sure, it was his administration trying to turn over all of these governments and hand all of these countries over to the global communist order. But he's still everyone's hero, despite creating the racism industrial complex. That does not make sense. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!